Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Mark Chander has been covering the global capital markets for more than 30 years, including stints as the global head of currency strategy for both HSBC and Brown Brothers Harriman. Chandler joined Bannockburn Global Forex LLC as a managing partner and chief market strategist in 2018. Mark is a prolific writer and speaker and regularly appears in the financial media. He is often quoted in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Bloomberg, and the Washington Post, among others. Mark also provides his insights and commentary on the markets on the most widely watched financial news channels, including CNBC, Bloomberg TV, CNN, and Fox Business. Mark's first book, Making Sense of the Dollar, was published by Bloomberg Press in 2009 and received a bronze award from independent publishers. His second book, Political Economy of Tomorrow, was published in February 2017. Mark is an honorary fellow of the Foreign Policy Association and has been named a business visionary by Forbes. Currently, he teaches at NYU Center for Global Affairs, where he is an associate professor. He's also an honorary visiting professor at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. Mark. Welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thank you very much. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Many of our episodes, I would say most, have a country-specific focus. So we love to have guests like you on the show to, to allow us to look at, at things from a global perspective. And, and financial markets and currencies really underpin everything. They bring everything together. So looking at it from that perspective, what can you tell us about the current state of the world? Uh, we are particularly interested in your thoughts regarding how economies around the world will be able to weather not just the, the ongoing stresses of the pandemic, but what will come after COVID. Yeah, no, isn't that fascinating? We only live in an interesting time. I think it's partly a curse to be in living in interesting times. But I, I think in some ways the world began afresh. That we, we took a, uh, a fork in the road, an inflection point in early November. Two big things happened. One, of course, was U.S. politics. And when, when it was clear that the Democrats were going to win, people began pricing in, assuming there's going to be more fiscal stimulus. The other important thing that happened right after the election, and still in early November, is the announcement of the vaccine. And these two things have excited the market like few other things have. What this means is people now, investors, these great pools of capital, are very confident of a global economic recovery probably beginning in the second half of this year. And so I'd say that in the short run, 
people, I think for the first time, we, people recognize that we are in a tunnel, but there's light at the end of it. And that light comes from the huge amount of fiscal stimulus the U.S. is providing, but other countries as well, and the vaccine. So we can get back to what, what we used to think was normal. So, Mark, as we're as we're talking about COVID, I mean, we're all living through COVID. It it's painful. Um, a lot of us don't have the say the the financial context to even deal with uh, with a lot of the day to day news that we're hearing, right? So, can you talk a little bit about what seems to be working um, and what isn't working? Well, I would say that uh, that of course, whenever you have a big like shock, there's winners and there's losers. And so, in the U.S. and in other countries, the manufacturing sector. The people who are making the, you know, the things that the goods, that has, has been a relatively strong sector. And with a combination of low interest rates and people staying at home, we've seen in many of the, say, Anglo American economies, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, we've seen housing prices rise. There's a lot of housing activity going on. And it's not just uh, building houses, it's buying them. It's refurbishing, uh, remodeling. And so the, I'd say the manufacturing sector, the housing sector are very strong. The downside of that is that that makes up a relatively modest amount of the economy. If you think about the basket of goods that Americans buy, that other people in high income countries buy, it typically is services. And, and so the services have been hard hit. And services, you, you might consider going to the pub or the restaurant as a good that you're buying, but it's really counted as food services. And so the hospitality industry, airlines, these are big sectors of the economy that are also very labor intensive. And when you think about that hospitality sector, uh, all those restaurants, bars, uh, nail salons, barbershops, these small businesses have been crushed. They were, they were under pressure before trying to compete with the big businesses. You know, we talk about the kind of bottom of an economy. What should it look like? Some people thought it'd be a V-shaped. We got hit very hard last spring, and then we come bouncing back. Some people think it'd be maybe more of a U-shape. takes us a bit longer. But I wonder if the better letter to think about is really K, that there's going to be some people who benefit, primarily those who were well-positioned beforehand. Like beforehand, there was about 30 million Americans that could work from home. They already they had this flexibility. They could do their jobs through the internet or mobile, things like that. I was fortunate. I was one of those people. But a lot of people aren't so fortunate. And without a job that you can do on the internet, I mean, that's why here, here as we talk today, the U.S. has, a, has about 10 million people that were working on the eve of the pandemic that aren't working now. And a lot of that is in the service sector. That's been the hardest hit. So I'd say uh, what's worked, manufacturing, housing, uh, what hasn't worked is the services. But I think that we're in the midst of this huge transformation. Things that we didn't think were, people like myself, I could buy books online. I might, I might buy some videos online, but I'm not going to buy clothes online. I'm not going to buy groceries online, but here in COVID, why not? So not, it's not necessarily e-everything. I had a, an appointment with a doctor. And part of it was over the internet. I mean, I'm glad it wasn't my proctologist. But in general, right, we talk about things that services, the, how the internet, how this COVID experience has expedited, accelerated some changes that were already taking place in society, like flexible work, mobility, uh, the idea of buying things over the internet, trusting the internet, trusting the, you know, that network, 
to uh, to buy your groceries or to buy a pair of clothes, you know, a pair of pants. I think we'll have to save the topic of uh, of home doctor visits and what your what our doctors ask us to do uh, online uh, for another topic. It, it'll probably be something else, not here. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's look at uh, the topic of debt fueled re- COVID recovery. This is something that's interesting to me, but I haven't taken the time to research it. So uh, my shortcut is to ask someone smart like you about it. So. Should the U.S. and other countries using these big stimulus packages be worried about dumping debt onto our future generations? And and the follow-on to that is, is it problematic that wealthier nations like the U.S. can do more than less wealthier nations? Yeah, you know, I, I think that this issue of debt is really like fascinating, especially here in the United States, because most Americans are going to spend their whole lives in debt, right? You go to college, get into debt, graduate school, more debt. Uh, you buy a house, more debt. You buy a car, you're borrowing the money. And I think it, it sounds very, uh, for, for many other parts of the world, spending your life in debt is, is, a, uh, is it the anomaly. It's not the normal practice. And yet what we've learned as Americans, I think, is a couple things. One is it's not so much the size of your debt that matters. It's not about size. It's about can you service the debt. And so what's happened, is, it's kind of amazing, is that Despite the U.S. having a lot more debt at the end of 2020 than we did in 2019, because interest rates fell so much, the debt servicing costs are actually less. So, I, you know, it's, you, you ask an important question, too. I think it really gets to our core. You know, in Germany, for example, in Netherlands, the word debt and guilt have the same root words. And I think that many Americans, maybe with a puritanical streak, also somehow think that debt is bad. And I, I think that it's, it's sort of like an old-fashioned way of thinking about things. Uh, I, it's, not, it's not that, like, of course, you say, well, I can't be in so much debt. The whole question is, can you service your debt? And so uh, I, I think that uh, it's true that the U.S. debt to GDP, put it in perspective, is we've borrowed one, a little bit more than one year's worth of output. All the goods and services the U.S. produces, we're about that much in debt. The good thing about that debt, though, is it's the best in the world. And by that, I mean the Treasury market, when the Federal Reserve has an auction, excuse me, when the Treasury Department has an auction that sells bonds, they're raising at an individual issue, they might be raising $30, uh, $40 billion at a time. So if you're a large central bank, a large reserve, a sovereign wealth fund, a hedge fund, you can buy those. But if you're in a European, the European bond market doesn't really exist. There's a French bond market, there's a German Bund market, there's a British gilt market. But those markets are more like the US muni market. A lot of small issuers with their own like idiosyncratic rules, uh, issuance dates, calendars, coupon payments. And so in some ways, what stands behind the U.S., and I think this is maybe a one, one contribution of the U.S. To, like, to the history of empires, is we did it with OPM. OPM, other people's money. The U.S. has been a net debtor for most of its history. And yet, you think about it, 13 small colonies on the East Coast. Within 100 years, they were, I mean, that's really, I mean, 18th, that's how I remember the, uh, the San Francisco 49ers. That's the gold rush. 
49ers. So within, within 75 years of the revolution, we swept across the nation, the whole continent. Within the next hundred years, we are like the masters. We are like the hegemonic power in the world. And that's despite the debt. What I think what, what the books would show is something like this. The U.S. borrows money from the world and is a smart, traditionally, leaving aside the 0809 great financial crisis. The U.S. has been a really a masterful investor of those money that we borrow. Typically, say a country uh, invests money, buys U.S. Treasury bonds, we're giving them a fixed income. And what do we do with that money? Americans are risk takers. We as Americans don't buy foreign bonds as much as we buy foreign stocks. So the return that we get on our investment tends to be better because partly we're taking on more risk. And so I, I think that really America, I think, has been founded on debt. And maybe it was when uh, George Washington threw, supposedly threw that silver, that silver continental into the Potomac. That sort of was the basis of U.S. fiscal policy ever since. But yet we've grown. The debt has not really prevented us from growing. And so I, I think it's a question of management of that debt and can you service the debt. But I also think you're right that there is a generational issue here. That the uh, uh, sort of uh, baby boomer generation has racked up a lot of debt. And now a new generation, leaving aside the current administration, a new generation is coming to power. And what's involved here, I think, is partly what what does like the one generation owe the other generation? And there is, I think, a generational tension over the budget, but I don't think over the deficit and debt, but I don't think it's really over the debt and deficit, really, I think that's more symbolic of a greater value change. I mean, you think about this, we've known, for example, we've known since like the 40s or at least the 50s about cigarettes were dangerous. And yet, it's taken, uh, it's really most of, through most of uh, the baby boomer generation that they first got hooked on it and now are weaned off of it at huge cost to the medical establishment. And I just think that we do other things that the baby boom generation, I mean, still stuck on carbon. I mean, the, the, for me, the biggest problem that we're going to give to the next generation is not really the debt, but the environment that's degrading. And when it comes to the debt, I mean, here's the other kind of interesting thing that's happened with the debt. Is you've got one arm of the government issuing the debt, U.S. Treasury Department. You've got another arm of the government buying the debt, the Federal Reserve. So I'll give you like some hard numbers here. Between the December fiscal package under Trump and this one that the current administration is working on, you're looking at something on the magnitude of 14% of GDP. The Federal Reserve, at an annual pace, is buying about 7% of GDP worth of government bonds. So now, who's the largest owner of U.S. Treasuries? We don't have to worry about uh, the Chinese selling their bonds. The biggest holders of U.S. Treasury bonds are here in the United States, the Federal Reserve and Social Security. We owe the debt to ourselves, as opposed to, say, some other countries in which foreigners own a large part of their debt, say, like in Argentina. And so I think that because we own the debt ourselves, and that the role of the treasury market in the world economy is it's like the keystone. So that last March when the, financial, when the uh, pandemic was striking, we had a horrible financial uh, disruption that even affected the treasury market. And it was like, it, I would say that the, uh, the house of finance shook 
because of that, down to its very roots, down to the down to the down to the base, and that the the treasuries. So other countries take on foreign debt. All of our trade, all of our debt is in dollars, and China might have made the printing press, but we have a good have the best printing press for U.S. dollars. So it's hard to conceive of a country like the U.S. can control its own currency, have its debt in its own currency, becomes a problem. The problem that arises, and this is where that modern monetary theory comes in, is that uh, this idea that the government can run deficit debt because we print off, we can print off as much money as we want. It's true up to a point. And the point is where other people, investors, including ourselves, domestic investors, lose confidence. And that confidence could be expressed through higher inflation. And I know, I, I know that, uh, for many of, many people who will listen to this podcast, inflation is not something that they experienced. We've been having since for 40 years, inflation's been falling in the U.S. Generally trending lower, and not just in the U.S., but in the world. And now there's people who think that a combination of the federal government's large deficits plus the monetary easing of the central bank is going to fuel inflation. It's going to break this 40-year down cycle and begin lifting inflation and lifting interest rates for the first time in a generation. So many questions, Mark. Unfortunately, we have a limited time. So let me ask you a related question about other countries, right? U.S. seems to be poised well to weather this, right? I- including having, you know, issuing debt to help our economic recovery. What about countries that aren't as credit worthy as the U.S.? How are they going to fare through this? <clears throat> yeah, no, I think you're right. That it's partly, everybody was hit with the shock at the same time, roughly the COVID. But then how we come out of it, the policy response. And so I think the U.S. has been uh, like it was in 08 and 09, very aggressive in its response. Few countries can keep up with how aggressive the U.S. is. And so that's going to produce, on the other side of it, it's going to produce another divergence. I'd say that uh, as, as we were talking about with the domestic economy, so too with the global economy, the U.S. and China went into it as the giants, the two world powers. And I think on the other side of COVID, they too are bigger and more important than a lot of these, uh, more important in terms of the world economy. And so uh, I, I do think that uh, the emerging market countries, many of them, who, who have uh, uh, less uh, social trust, uh, maybe leaders who don't really believe in uh, the full, like, don't really appreciate the power of the pandemic. Uh, some countries were like Argentina was heavily in debt beforehand. And so how can they spend their way out? And I think that, uh, uh, so that there are some countries, emerging market countries that, that have, that will do well. And right now I'd say that the leaders of that is really in the Chinese orbit. That is, uh, Asia, uh, with China, sort of this huge uh, gravity to it. Other countries are moving in its orbit and the strong demand from China is helping South Korea, helping Vietnam, helping Philippines, helping Indonesia, helping Taiwan. And uh, so I think that those countries have a big friendly giant on their, on their doorstep. Uh, Eastern Europe, uh, like uh, Poland, uh, Hungary, Czech, uh, these, are, uh, these countries are sort of protected by their trade ties with Europe. The problem is Europe grows slowly, even in the best of times. And they're slow now. And the vaccine rollout is slow. So Eastern Europe may be more vulnerable. Uh, and then when we come to like the, the Americas, 
both uh, the two big countries, uh, Mexico and uh, Brazil, have leaders who have uh, sort of challenged like the economic orthodoxy, ironically, from different sides. You've got AMLO in Mexico, who's sort of a left populist, and you've got Bolsonaro in Brazil, who's sort of a right populist. And both of them are seeing record levels. I mean, they were, you look around the world, who's got the highest uh, problems with COVID? Brazil and Mexico are often listed in the tops of those lists. And both countries are challenging like the, uh, the, the orthodoxy that global investors like. And so this year, so far, we're only two months into it, but the weakest currencies are, are those in Latin America, Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, Chile, and uh, I'm sorry, Colombia rather than Chile. Because the, uh, that's the other part of the story is as you have this reflation, as people are betting on global expansion and Asia is already picking up steam, what we've seen happening now is we're getting a huge rise in commodities. And it's, again, one of the first times in a generation we've seen huge moves. For example, copper is at its highest level in over a decade. Oil, last April during the, COVID, the heart of the COVID crisis, oil prices fell in below zero. That is, you had to pay somebody because the storage was all filled. There's no place for people to put the oil. You had to pay for people to take the oil away from you. And now oil is over $60 a barrel. And so throughout the commodity space, and some commodity producers, for example, Chile is, a, is one of the, I think it produces about a third of the world's copper. And as we shift away from carbon towards electricity, whether it's uh, EV, electric vehicles, uh, batteries, uh, electric appliances, copper is what people need. And copper is going through the roof, and that's good for some countries like Chile. Interesting that, that you, you, you bring up copper. I remember many, many years ago when I was in college, studying the the Chilean experience and and how they within at least Latin America uh, a shining economic star one of the things that our professors would, would point to is the fact that that economy had been very dependent on on copper for a long time and they had sought to diversify and that's how I mean obviously they've had a wine industry for for a long time but that's really when they began to emphasize uh, their their wine industry, uh, their fisheries, etc. So it's it's interesting to see how now it's copper once again that's 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 helping them out. You addressed what's happening in let's say at a at a regional level, although you spoke about some specific countries. But looking ahead uh, from your perspective, what are what are some countries that you're looking at? Maybe some some regions as well, whether for good or bad reasons. But one thing that I find is that if if you get a lot of smart people together and asked them, you know, what's a country that I should track? Obviously, there's going to be some overlap, but depending on the particular focus that you have, depending on your particular line of business, you're going to have different um, different priorities and, and different rationales for saying, I think this is important. We should keep an eye on what's happening here. So maybe in addition to what, to what you just said, are there other places, other regions that are worth keeping an eye on with a view to how those places could, could help shape future events. Yeah, I think about this a lot because I often think about the world as like a big chessboard, maybe like a risk board, if you will. And I think there's a few pieces that are, are mobile. So like a state, you know, some states are always Democrat and you say, well, it's really we want the swing state that's the key. And same thing. So I think there's like four or five pieces on the global chessboard 
that are flexible, that can move. Like Venezuela, Cuba, close to home. But I think the more, the more uh, difficult places really now is the confrontation between the U.S. and China in the, in the uh, Pacific, but especially in the South China Sea. And so uh, countries like, uh, for me, uh, the uh, sort of a doomsday scenario would run something like this. The U.S. trying to do the right thing, annoyed by how China has treated Hong Kong, how they treat their Muslims. And so uh, uh, we don't want China to be, doing, be intimidating its neighbors. And so we offer Taiwan a mutual defense pact, which we don't have right now. Or maybe even a trade deal. Or maybe we recognize them as a country, because ever since 1979, we have a one-China policy. And so I can imagine where the U.S. and other countries trying to do the right thing uh, to express the dissatisfaction with the way Beijing acts on the international stage. And to China, we'd be sending a signal, besides arming the Taiwanese, we'd be sending them a signal that if they don't move, they're going to lose Taiwan. That piece of the chessboard is going to go from a neutral place to away from them for another generation. And I think that would, could give President Xi of China the incentive to do what he's done elsewhere and display this uh, sort of iron fist nationalism like I'm thinking about Tibet, Macau, Hong Kong, uh, the or the uh, the Muslims, uh, and so I uh, I do worry about that as a piece. And there's other, it's so strategic there too. The Philippines, now that was the that's the only colony the U.S. has ever had. The Philippines, it's we we basically took it from Spain, so the Spanish colony. Then the U.S. took it as a colony. It was the only colony the U.S. has had, and yet the uh, the current president of uh, of the Philippines is very anti-American. And so is that a peace, which, which also where the Philippines are in the region is a very strategic place, besides that the U.S. has bases there. And so I, so I think that uh, from a geopolitical point of view, leaving aside like the, F, the foreign exchange market of money, but just thinking about geopolitics, I worry about pieces that can change, pieces, change sides on the board, Taiwan, Philippines, and even in the heart of Europe, I worry about Turkey. You know, Turkey is, uh, Turkey's wanted to join the EU for a long time. And Europe always has a reason why not to. And I think it comes down really to two things, even if it might not be polite to say that, but it's because they're poor and because they're not Christian. And I think that acts as a certain hurdles, perhaps not decisive, but I think those are big hurdles in the way of, for Turkey to be accepted into Western Europe's fold. And at the same time, they've got strategic interests that have gone against the U.S. interests. Even though, you know, the reason we have NATO is because of Turkey and Greece. That gave rise to NATO. And Turkey has uh, many of its strategic issues, it's, it's more aligned with Russia. And so Turkey is another piece that I could see uh, moving from one side, part of NATO, to another side, not right away, but it's already where uh, last year uh, Turkey uh, bought and tested an anti-aircraft, an anti like a like an aircraft defense system that it bought from Russia, and who's it aimed at? NATO airplanes. And so, uh, so yeah, so I think that there's some hot spots in the world. But one last part that I would mention, and I know that you know, many for many of us, and I, I lived a little bit on a farm where the uh, uh, where I learned my lesson from naming a calf because we ended up eating it. And, uh, I, I, you know, we, we, we eat things that we don't necessarily know and want to know how they got to on our plate. And the same thing with our technology. 
the, 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 our technology is not clean technology. The metals, many of the metals, uh, come from either ecologically bad for the environment to get, or they come from very disputed parts of the world, especially I mean, uh, like parts of Africa, where you could get these very rare uh, metals. And I, I think that uh, uh, if, if there is a division in the world and superpowers and a cold war, I, I think that uh, uh, we want to keep an eye on those where those resources are and are there alternatives. And I think that uh, many of us, I mean, I, I just know even for myself, that I have no clue where all the pieces of my cell phone come from. And that if uh, I can imagine how if someone knew and could corner one of those metals that are essential, which is what China talks about with these rare earths. Rare earths aren't so rare. It's just that uh, they're not very uh, efficient to mine, to like gather together and then process. And China has uh, tried to weaponize them with Japan about a decade ago. And the U.S. has responded. Uh, for me, I thought it was like a Sputnik moment. It was like, hey, wake up. And I think that there are other Sputnik moments to come. They were a bit naive, Americans, a bit naive about where these things come from and how safe they are, how safe and secure access to them really are. I just want to follow up on a couple of points. Um, first, this most recent idea that you that you brought up, the fact that, like you said, we, we don't really know the world in which we live in, the, all of the conveniences that, that we have. I think there's not enough thought given to what it takes to get those things to us. And we become dependent, right, on our computers, on our, on our phones. Um, but like you said, I mean, that can become a real problem. To put it one way, if, if all of a sudden we were to tell Americans or, or, or Europeans, for that matter, if we were to say, well, look, there's an important choice that we have to make, and it's either we put up with some horrendous human rights catastrophe or we have to give up our phones for a year. I don't know how many people would answer that question honestly, but we all know deep down that there's going to be a lot of people that say, well, look, I'm sorry. I mean, it, I, it's not that I want these terrible things to happen, but, you know, I, I just can't afford to, to, to go back. Right. And then I, I like this idea of, of, of the, the, the risk uh, board or the, or the, or the chessboard. That's a very interesting way of, of looking at, at what's happening around the world. And, and, and I think that part of what lies behind that that way of, of, of envisioning things is how different events or different trends can really impact the, the current equilibriums that, that, that we have, right? And I think Turkey is a, a great example of that. And, you know, without wanting to get too much into Turkey itself, uh, that would be a, a topic for, for another podcast for sure. But that is already proving to be a game changer. And I understand to, to some degree why Europe would have its apprehensions uh, about accepting Turkey as a member of the EU, et cetera. But I think that I really feel that history is going to look at that as one of the key moments, really, when the actions of the West, for lack of a better word, opened the door to far worse scenarios. I mean, I think over time, Turkey came to the correct conclusion that Europe really didn't want anything to do with them, at least not at the same level at which European countries engage with each other. And Turkey did the, the logical thing, right? They're beginning to look in other directions. They're cozying up to, to, to Russia on, on the one hand, but they're also finding an outlet for their aspirations in, in this sort of revival of their, of their own 
traditions and and you know if you look at the way they've been intervening in in Azerbaijan well, well uh, in support of Azerbaijan and its and its struggle with Armenia I mean that right there uh, and, and and I think this doesn't get the attention that it should but the fact that the president of Turkey flies out to Azerbaijan for the victory parade or so-called victory parade. Uh, I don't want to give my own assessment of the outcome of that conflict. But the, the fact is there, there was clearly a lot of uh, Turkish participation on the side of Azerbaijan. And in other times, or if you, if you, or if you go back and look at that history, that's precisely the sort of change, the, the sort of paradigm shift that often precedes major world events, right? Like all of a sudden you have a country that for a long time, like you said, NATO member trying to, to you know, get into the European club at some point saying, fine, we're going to look somewhere else. And now they're starting to intervene in the affairs of, of other countries in the region. They probably have aspirations further afield, um, obviously because of the cultural connections that they have with countries in, in Central Asia. And again, not to, not to make this about Turkey, right? It's just to, it's just to illustrate how these shifts can, can really have lasting consequences. So that was um, two very interesting perspectives to bring. So Mark, we only have a few minutes left. So I'd like to hit you with this question because you are much better poised to answer this than, than me Googling it. So let's talk about digital currencies or virtual currencies. I'm still a little mystified by them and I kind of follow, I, I don't own any Bitcoin, but I read a lot, right? And so I'm, I'm curious um, what your thoughts are on the emergence, you know, kind of Bitcoin's been in the news a lot lately, the last little while. Um, you can talk a little bit about virtual currencies in general, you know, maybe using Bitcoin as the poster child. And then also, you know, the other big thing is, is China rolling out its digital UN and, uh, and why that matters, right? Why, why it might be important uh, or something to pay attention to. Yeah, sure, isn't that? That's an incredible thing, huh? Like, imagine this. I tell you that if you solve a computer problem, which might take you as much electricity as the whole country of New Zealand uses, solve a computer problem, I'll give you a token. And with this token, turns out that this token is now worth over $50,000. Now, I sort of think of uh, Bitcoins and the cyber currencies a bit the way that, uh, uh, like, my wife is a Catholic. She's Catholic because she self-identifies as a Catholic. Bitcoins call themselves money, but they don't have any of the characteristics that one would think of as money. Typically, economists say there's three characteristics of money. One, they're used as a medium of exchange. And people aren't really using Bitcoins or cyber currencies to buy goods and services. The second uh, function of money is that it is a store of value. And so I know, I, I can imagine what some of your listeners are thinking, well, the dollar, dollar doesn't buy me what it did when I was a kid. I'd say one way is that the, the fiat money, the money that we have, slowly changes its purchasing power over gradually over a long period of time. Think about what happened in the last couple of days, the Bitcoin, the range between the high and the low, some days was 20%. So it can't really be used as a payment vehicle. I mean, you know, there's this urban legend from the same people who talk about a cat that jumps into a microwave. They talk about a guy who bought a pizza with a Bitcoin. Imagine the problems that would have. You know, you paid $50,000 for what? So it's a means of exchange, store of value, or a unit of account. And when I, when I, who can like price something like as a unit of account? My trade balance is 50 Bitcoins. Or my salary is 10 Bitcoins. People, we don't think about it in those terms. So I'd say that for the most part, 
I'd say that the idea that Bitcoins or cyber currencies are money is, is, a, is a big stretch to me. They don't have the functions or they don't look like money. But uh, the other thing here, I think, is there's a contradiction at the very center of it. So if the idea is that fiat money, this money that we have, that's no longer backed by gold or silver, is going to debase over time. It's going to fall in value over time. Then what we want to do with these cyber currencies is hold on to them. Not use them to buy goods and services. Use wasting asset like paper money to buy your goods and services. Keep your savings in bitcoins or cyber currencies. And that's what a lot of people are doing. You know, they've got a, a name for this: H O D L. Hold on for dear life. And what this means really is that out of the bitcoins, most like I want to say like over a third of them have not really changed hands in the past couple of years. And also, I, I kind of think that the cryptocurrencies is a, uh, is a bit of navel-gazing exercise. You know, my, I have a couple of sisters in the Midwest. They don't have a clue about bitcoins or cyber currencies. They're lucky to make ends meet, let alone speculate in something that's moving around like this. Remember, only half of American households own stock. I saw one survey that said only about 6% of Americans have invested or traded in cyber currencies in the past year. So, but I do think that, that it's sort of like, I do think they have a function though. And here's what I think is, is in my work, uh, su the supply and demand is like gravity. It's the law. You might not like it, but it's the law. And, and when something falls in price so much, you have to think there's either a lot of supply or weak demand. And so as we, as we talk here today, like I mentioned, there's about 14 or 15 trillion dollars of negative yielding bonds in the world. Equity valuation before this last little hiccup was stretched beyond most people's imaginations. Uh, the other day, the uh, Case Schiller, who reports home prices in the U.S., said that house prices in the U.S. rose by over 10% last year. There's so much money circulating. Not that it's equally distributed, but there's tons of money in the system. And I wonder if the cyber currencies do for savings what trees do for carbon. Trees are a great carbon trap, right? If you want to get rid of the carbon in the air, plant a billion trees. Trees are a carbon sink. And I wonder if the crypto space, inventing a new asset, what incredible uh, imagination and foresight. But maybe it's for a different purpose than the inventors and the players think. Maybe what it does, the socially responsible, the socially good thing it does, is all the money that's chasing the cryptocurrency space, it would be pushing yields into more negative territory, driving equity prices higher, or building redundant capacity, factories or, or office buildings we no longer need, malls. And so for me, those cryptocurrencies might have a purpose, but not as money, but as a place to store savings, and especially for people who have surplus savings. But I think you're also right that there is a move underway to take advantage of this technology, blockchain, a shared ledger, digital, which is for instant. I mean, when I, if I write you a check, it would, you deposit at your bank and they would tell you you couldn't have those funds for two days. Why? Two days? Why can't we do it instantaneously? And so I do think that there's about, uh, might be uh, 30 central banks in the world that are looking at investigating the possibility of a digital version of their currency. So like right now, if I, go to, uh, if I go to Amazon and I buy a book, I can pay them by a check. 
I can pay them with my credit card. I can pay them with PayPal. I can pay them with their own credit card. So they're like company script, if you will. They, they lend me the money to buy their stuff. And so down the road, I might be able to pay them with a digital dollar. So I would think about what's going on with the central banks. And instead of a currency per se, I would think of it much more as a payment system. And I think that's the important point about China, is that China is ahead of the game. And I know many, many Americans have this idea that China steals all of our technology. China has developed a technology for their own digital RMB, the digital yuan. They've developed that technology, and they're already unfolding it. That is, they've already experimented in some cities, giving people uh, money. But remember what that would assume. It assumes that you have access to like a smartphone or access to a bank. And a lot of Americans are not banked. A lot of Chinese aren't banked either, but they might have a cell phone. The point is China is ahead of the curve, and they'll probably be among the first to roll it out. But in China's case, it's not so much simply about uh, payment systems, but think about what it does. We, I think of it as like C3, command, control, communication. They've centralized now. They, there's no more tax evasion. There's no more illegal underground economy if everything's got to be cleared or seen by some official. You know, in the United States, we've got these things on the highways for these uh, easy passes. You can just drive through instead of having to stop in a toll. A lot of Americans were reluctant to adopt that technology because they were afraid the police were going to time them between the, t the tolls. And if it was faster than the 60 miles an hour or whatever it was, they'd get a ticket in the mail. And so uh, Americans are especially paranoid about this, I think. And that what I think what happens is that China might have it where the central government plays the key role, centralization. That's China's way. America's way is much more decentralized. So I could see where we divide a wholesale market where the Federal Reserve provides digital dollars to the commercial bank. And then the commercial, you have an account at the commercial bank and you say, I want, I want to put some digital dollars into my wallet so I can go shopping on the Internet. Well, you'd get those dollars from your bank. So there could be a wholesale and a retail market where the central bank, Federal Reserve, is more in the wholesale market. It does not want to compete with the commercial banks the way maybe China wants to compete with Alipay or uh, the WeChat. You bring up a, a great point, uh, right, about the, the transparency, you know, the transparency that this kind of payment system can bring. And I lived in China for a little more than 10 years and lived through that that transformation. And it's just incredible, right? You went from you went from a place where cash was was king, where there were not that many places that would take a credit card, where there were not that many ATMs even. Uh, at least that you could use as a foreigner. You had to walk around with wads of cash and whatever you you got up to, there was really no record of it. And now we're at the at the opposite end of that, right? Where it's an exception, right? To run into someone in China that's using cash on a regular basis. It, it's the exception, right? But of course, that means that there is a record. There's someone keeping track of that. I remember uh, having a conversation many years ago uh, with, with someone in, in, in China talking about what's going to happen with the you know, with these, uh, they're not that popular here, but in, in, in Asia, for example, every major city, you have the public transport card. You use that when you take a train, when you get on a bus, you're, you're tapping that card and you can use them at least in places like Hong Kong, for example, they have the octopus card. You can use it for almost everything. You can pay your utility bills with it. You can go to McDonald's, you can go to the drugstore, but that creates 
records, right? And I, I would be interested in, in, in finding out, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if the police uh, are using that information. Um, they probably have, and then they're probably going to start doing so increasingly, right? Like looking and saying, okay, well, let's look at this octopus card that we found in, on, on this person and boom, there you go. You were, you were a block away from, from the crime, right? So fascinating topic as, as well. Before we sign off, uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about your work and, and your company. Tell us about Bannockburn Forex. Coincidentally, I think it was two days ago that I read something about the battle of Bannockburn. I don't know if there's a connection between the the name of the company and and the the battle in Scotland. Um, it could be something completely different. <laughs> you know, there might, it might be some some town here in the U.S. So, so please um, let, let us know how the name was chosen, but more importantly, what the company does and what you do there. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, as you can imagine, uh, some of the guys that found the company uh, are very proud of their Scottish roots. I don't know that whether that's it's golf or their finance capabilities. But uh, so Bannockburn is really a small boutique. And he, here's what happens. I think, you know, we, we all know when we go out and buy a pair of shoes or a shirt or a suit, we know that we're paying retail. And we know that whoever we're buying it from probably paid wholesale. And that's their profit. Well, we think about money. Few people realize that in money, there's a wholesale and retail market for it. I'll tell you the wholesale market. Banks can borrow money from the Federal Reserve, from the central bank, for zero. And you know what the retail side of it is? My credit card charges me 21%. What happens, we find, is that I spent most of my career helping large businesses, large asset managers. And then I began thinking that maybe I was part of the problem. Thinking that their problem, one of the key problems besides the environment is the disparity of wealth and power in the U.S. And I was thinking, I've been spending my career helping the largest. And so I thought that before I get too old, before they get me to that glue factory, that I would try to take my skills and help small businesses. And Bannockburn helps small and medium-sized businesses by bundling up a lot of the small guys. They can get into the wholesale market. I'll give you an example. For a large business, a multinational, a, a large bank, uh, asset manager, when they try to trade the euro, they don't just trade it in pennies. They don't trade it in tenths of pennies or hundredths of a penny. The spread between the bid and the offer, which is where the price lies, like in a house, can be one thousandth of one penny. The small and medium-sized businesses in America are sometimes paying three and four percent spread. So we try to help these small businesses sort of get institutional level of efficiency. That means better pricing, execution, transparency. And then that's where my team comes in is providing them with the analysis, understanding the tools that they have access to, that institutions have access to and how to make those those available to retail. I kind of think it's a, it's a story that I like, David versus Goliath, helping bring these skills, these uh, the efficiencies transparencies down to small, medium-sized businesses. So that's what Bannockburn does. It specializes just in foreign exchange, helps really just small, medium-sized businesses. It's not going to be the S&P 500. And, and what we can do is, you know, it's sort of like interesting too, it's a variable rate business that a bank will charge whatever they can get away with. But we want to turn into that variable into a fixed, to make it more transparent, a fixed markup. So everybody knows what markup, what retail spread they're paying. 
That's great, Mark. Yeah, I think you did a great job of of uh, explaining it so that uh, even I can understand what you do, which is which is kind of the, the it's the low bar, but it's an important bar to hit. Uh, so we always like to end our podcast with recommendations from uh, from all of us. Um, so we'd like to ask you: Do you, have you read anything, listened to anything lately that's been uh, either on point with our topic today, or or something uh, completely unrelated? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Because I, I think about like I spend my days. Uh, I basically live London hours in the U.S. I'm up at about four o'clock in the morning. Where every morning by about uh, six thirty in the morning, I've I've done like about a fourteen, fifteen hundred word essay about what's happened while we were sleeping. It's almost like tofu. You know, tofu is partly digested soybean cheese. And what my team does, what I do, is we partly digest the news so our clients don't have to be reading thousands of headlines. They can get up, they can find, here's a quick summary of what's going on in the world. And primarily looking at the capital markets. But I find that even though I can do this like 12 hours a day, uh, you need to think about other things uh, besides this narrow political economy. And so I kind of think that what what's helpful, sort of like cross-training. You're going to play a sport. You want to, you want to train your body other ways besides just that one thing. And so I, I thought about uh, the question and I thought of two things I could share that are, for me, are, uh, changes the, uh, the way I can see the world. And one of them is a book called The Hidden Lives of Trees by this guy, Peter uh, Wolben. And I never will see a tree quite the same way. The, the argument in the book is, is essentially that we humans make too big of a distinction between animals and plants. And that trees are amazingly communal. Like they, they're more, much more like bees and ants as social as they live in groups and the root structure. And just like in our, in our, in our intestines or throughout our body, we've got these microbiomes, these, these uh, bacteria that actually help our body function. Same thing for trees. But so much of it takes place underground in the root structure. So it's a fascinating book. Uh, it, 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 uh, maybe it uh, anthropomorphizes trees a little bit too much, but it's a fascinating story. And seriously, now when I take my, my little walks around town, I, I'm always looking at trees a bit differently than I did before. And, they, and it's, maybe it's also like you know, there's a story about a butterfly that lives for a day and it lands on a big, powerful oak tree and thinks the oak tree is dead. And, and the trees work on a time frame that people like me, who is like uh, having to do many things during the day, right? We're always rushed for time. The trees are sort of like, uh, they, they react so much slower to these things. That's sort of like more relaxing. And the other book, though, I'd like to share with you is something that does relate to a lot of these issues we talk about because we're assuming a certain type of person, a type of value system. And a lot of the things that we learn about people takes place because we've experimented with one small subsection that this book called The Weirdest People in the World. The weird doesn't mean they were just strange, but it means that it stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich democracies. And uh, and so a lot of things that we, a lot of the kind of experiments, the social experiments about the, uh, the kid who gets a piece of candy and he's told if he doesn't eat that piece of candy, they'll get, he'll get another two pieces. All these things are sort of based on, uh, traditionally a very narrow sample of the human species. And it, not just it's a narrow sample, but it might not really be representative. And that's the argument of the book. It's not really representative of the human experience. And it's interesting what he traces it to. Uh, and it's traced ultimately to the ability to read. 
then we begin forcing people to read. It changes. That is cultural thing. Teaching people to read changes the way the brains work. So, for example, uh, the ability to uh, recognize people's emotions from looking at pictures goes down with readers, and 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 even more than that is not just readers because for a lot of uh, for a lot of our history as a species, uh, when we since we've been like developing reading as a skill, men got to read, women didn't. And they weren't trained to read. They weren't taught to read. And so, what changed that? was the Protestant Reformation. Because it meant that you had to read the Bible yourself. You didn't depend on the priest to tell you what it was. And uh, so the book traces a little bit about the uh, that as Protestantism grew, so did women education, women reading. And so it's the old, you know, we all know about like uh, the, the sort of uh, capitalism and the rise of Protestantism. But this really puts a different spin on it to explain a complete, to explain like the world from like a different angle, like looking at a different end of the telescope, if you will. So this, the weirdest people in the world, written by it's, the subtitle is "How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous," by this guy Joseph Enrique. and it's a it's a thick book, uh, and so it's not something that, you know you read overnight. But it is. So it's, I guess it's not like a Stephen King novel, but it's a uh, it's fascinating and it reads a bit like a novel because you're sort of like wondering like. How is it that we believe this stuff? And then to see the diversity of how other people in the world think. It's, it's quite amazing. So both of those books, The Hidden Lights of Trees and The Weirdest People in the World, I think are kind of the kind of books that help you see the world a little bit differently, maybe with a little bit more of a critical eye, and maybe with a little bit more sensitivity to like the other, in this case, like trees that can exist as a community. Great. Thank you, Mark. Fred, what do you have for us today? So... I've been looking back at at some of the memorable reads that I've had over the years, and I'd like to recommend something from the from the playback machine. This, this article is from October two thousand and seven. It appeared in the Foreign Service Journal, which I used to receive when I was still in in the Foreign Service, and I guess for for a little bit afterwards. With all due respect, most of the stuff in the uh, in the journal wasn't that interesting, but there was. One article that, that that stuck over the years because of the, of the topic. It's called The Foreign Service Murder, and that already gives away part of the plot. And basically, it's a first-hand account, about as first-hand of an account as you can get of the murder of uh, the U.S. ambassador to Equatorial Guinea in 1971 by his uh, deputy. So basically, uh, an American diplomat killed another at an African embassy, it's a, it's a pretty good read. I mean, you know, the story itself is is rather salacious, and and, and it's well, well told by someone who 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 knows uh, about it. There's a lot of urban legends that that swirl around the State Department involving this incident. I had heard you know snippets of it, so it was good to get the the actual story. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a good read about a really interesting incident in in, in American diplomatic history. It was written by another Foreign Service officer called Len Shirtleff, and uh, we'll, we'll provide the details on the blog posts, but it, it was the October 2007 edition of the, of the Foreign Service Journal, a Foreign Service Murder. What about you, Jonathan? What do you have for us? So I'm taking us to the sports arena today uh, because I saw an article this morning that struck me in part because I used to be a distance runner. And there's a really great distance runner at my alma mater, BYU. 
And I didn't know that BYU won its first college cross-country championships on the men's side in 2019. And that was the last it was held because they didn't have it last year. BYU's number one runner's name is Connor Mance. It was interesting because he's, you know, one of the one of the top distance athletes in the world now. And I think he's still got two years of college eligibility left. But the thing I thought was most interesting, is because I was doing a workout this morning, and, and it was one of my harder workouts, and I was hating life. And it was, you know, it was a 50-minute workout. So it's not like I was really pushing myself to the limits. I was in a lot of pain. And so his coach describes him uh, as somebody who has a high tolerance for pain. He, he takes these distance races, and rather than, you know, if you've, if you've ever watched distance races, especially in track, they'll generally stay together, right? The pack of runners will stay together until the last lap, and then it's a dead sprint to the end. Doesn't doesn't really matter how long it is. And this guy runs, uh, he just runs out front. He just, he just takes off and anyone who can keep up with him can keep up. And when he was a younger collegiate runner, he got burned a few times doing this, but he just pushes through the pain. And I think this quote that I read about him, you know, he said, I've come to grips with the fact that this pain is, is temporary, right? That there is a 0% chance that I will die from this pain that I'm putting myself through. And so I just run as hard as I can, right? I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I thought that was very powerful. I mean, and on a lot of levels, uh, in a lot of parallels in our lives that we can draw from that, right? Is that, is that enduring pain is not necessarily a bad thing, especially if you're on your way to doing something. And, and very rarely is the pain of the degree that it's going to kill us. So, so just keep pushing. There will be an end to it. And you, uh, you can come out better, right? You, you can really continue to build on your character, whether it's physically, whether it's mentally, emotionally, right? And so I find some good parallels uh, for life in that. And also as, as an athlete or a, a weekend warrior athlete, I take a lot of comfort in that. And, and it, it's a good kick in the butt because which we need once in a while to say, hey, you know what? It hurt, but you're kind of being a baby. So just suck it up and keep going, right? So that's my closing advice for us today. Well, Mark, we want to thank you again for your time today with us. It's been fascinating. Certainly loved your insights and, and hope that we can check in with you again at some point and, and get an update. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Good luck to everybody. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.